0: the Digital Leaders Podcast, Episode 8, Lenny Snymer. Technology is changing the way we connect, learn, and do business. On this season of the Digital Leaders Podcast, we sit down with some of the UK's most influential thought leaders in government, enterprise, and entrepreneurship to learn more about what they are doing to digitally transform themselves and the organizations they lead, why it matters, and what we can do as listeners to build our own prosperous, digitally enabled and connected communities. The time is now, the place is the Digital Leaders Podcast, and the future is digital. Hi guys, and welcome to episode 8 of the Digital Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Tara Ferguson, the founder of the podcast production studio SBT Digital, and on today's show, we sit down with the GM of UK and Ireland at WeWork. Lenny Znymer. So Lenny grew up in a tight-knit community in Colorado and had her career to be a psychologist figured out at a relatively early age. She attended Boston University and naturally graduated with a BA in psychology and shortly after took on the role of community leader at the New York City startup WeWork. After two years of building the brand and community in New York City, she moved to London to open the organization's first UK location in 2015. Fast forward three years later, and WeWork is on track to have a total of 40 locations operational in the UK by the end of 2018. On today's show, Lenny shares the catalyst behind WeWork's rapid growth why We Work believe everyone should be equipped for the future world of work and what they are doing to make that happen, and why they define themselves as a movement towards a new way of working and what that looks like. So without further ado, please welcome my guest today, Lenny Snymer. All right, so Lenny, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. All right, so before coming to open WeWork's first UK location, I know you spent a couple of years in New York in the headquarters as the community leader there. And I wanted to sort of get an understanding of what made you guys decide that you were ready to open up a branch in the UK?
1: Sure, certainly. So taking a step back, I did have the opportunity to see and be a part of WeWork prior to our international expansion. And what I'll say with that, though, is that we always had a global vision. I remember specifically hearing Adam Newman, our CEO and co-founder, talk about our presence in Asia, in London, in Australia, in Mexico, as if it wasn't a far-fetched dream. (laughs) He had always painted it as if it was imminent or inevitable, and it was all about the right time. But I think ultimately having that global vision was something that by the time we decided we wanted to expand to the UK, it was a really obvious choice for us. So I think ultimately Miguel and, and Adam the co-founders and the whole company early on always believed that we were creating something more than a beautiful workspace and amazing services. So they knew that it transcended cultures and languages and was far more about creating a place where people worked to make a life and and not just a living. So when we were thinking about our global expansion, to be honest, I think starting with London seemed like a no-brainer from a few different perspectives. Right. Besides the fact that we anticipated it to be relatively similar to the U.S., I think we were a little disillusioned by the similarity of language. (laughs) There are many (laughs) complexities that come up that I think people don't necessarily consider when going international, but I think we knew that it was such a major hub for technology, innovation, entrepreneurs, large enterprises, and so it seemed like a very obvious and natural first step for us.
0: Right, and I think that's kind of the case with most organizations. And like you said, probably the language similarities that make you seem like natural fit. And we'll chat a little bit later about some of the things that you learned to do differently. Lots to say on that. (laughs) Cool, cool. The other thing I want to know is when did you join the organization? Did you join it when it was like still pretty small, like a relatively small startup?
1: Sure. So I did. I stumbled upon WeWork in 2013 And I remember telling my parents, actually, that I was going to be joining a startup. And they, of course, had never heard of WeWork. I was taking a bit of a leap of faith in moving from Boston to New York City to join the company. And I just remember my parents at the time having such an eyebrow raised and thinking, there is no security in this whatsoever. What are you doing? Um, Are your parent, do your parents
0: both have more traditional sort of professions?
1: So, yes and no. They actually were both psychologists. And then my dad went into real estate. So, ironically, which is somewhat connected to us, yes. but I actually always thought that my path would be in psychology as well. And mm-hmm. so I studied psychology in university. I thought that I would go on to do my master's in clinical psychology. And I think ultimately, I have always been incredibly driven by people and by fulfillment and the idea of, of being happy and kind of thinking holistically about someone's life. And so it's it's funny. I think that I've come full circle in a lot of ways and I'm really pursuing something that I'm incredibly passionate about. It just was not directly in the area of psychology, and so I joined the company in 2013, so I've been with WeWork for a little over five years, and the first two years of that was in New York City, and the past three have been in London.:
0: That's amazing, so exciting. OK. Yes. Well, I was just going to say, too, with, given everything that you've done, because you were community leader in New York, and now you are the GM opening up all the locations pretty much in the UK right now. The fact that you're meeting with so many different people all the time it seems like your psychology degree, I'm sure, is, is coming in handy. I
1: think so. I mean, I think ultimately business ends up being about people.
0: Right, exactly. And
1: I think I didn't anticipate that when I was first starting. I I knew that I loved what initially attracted me to working in WeWork and, and for WeWork was being close to so many different companies who were doing such incredibly inspiring things. And if I could help support and facilitate any of the even as minute as a detail may be, but but help in their business or in that venture, I knew that I would be doing something impactful and something meaningful. And I just think I didn't quite anticipate the scale and the kind of growth that we would have and the scale of that impact today.
0: Well, I mean, to be fair, I don't think, I'm sure that maybe the founders anticipated the growth. I <laughs> but so. I, it's I'm still, kinda... Yeah. But I think about how many, and we're going to, we'll talk about it. And actually, maybe it's a good time to chat about it now, actually. So like, you guys are, I don't know if this is the right word, the largest tenant outside the government in the UK. Is that correct? In London, yes. Oh, in London, yes. How many locations do you actually have open in London right now? Do you know?
1: Yeah, so we actually, exciting time for us now that we've hit the first of a month, we've opened a couple more locations, which is crazy. But we have 29 locations in London, and another 11 further announced.
0: Okay, that's amazing. Technology has enabled us to be able to work sort of anywhere now. And there is a big, I feel like at least five years ago, 10 years ago, there was a real big shift for people to say, I have my laptop, I can work from anywhere, I'm going to work from home, etc. But now you're seeing, I mean, with the rate of expansion of your locations, for example, you're seeing that people are opting to want to work in these more curated, collaborative workspaces.
1: They are absolutely. So ultimately, there's been a macro shift in the way that people are working, and I think in what they expect from their work as well. So more and more people want to work for mission-driven companies or on projects they're really passionate about, and they ultimately expect their workspaces to be able to support that creative, flexible work that leaves them feeling engaged and inspired. And so I think I mean, ultimately gone are the days that people are are coming in at nine, leaving at five, earning a paycheck, and then using that money to fuel quote unquote real life life. that they want to live. People are actually looking more and more to integrate the two and not have such a clear separation. And work is also becoming part of someone's identity, part of someone's life craft. And we want to support making that life as meaningful as possible. And I think ultimately it happens to where I like to think that we're kind of driving that force of being able to integrate the two more flexibly, but there really is undeniably this kind of macro shift in the way people are wanting to work driven by that flexibility and merging personal and professional.
0: And you guys are, I mean, with the continued expansion of your locations, you're obviously seeing that desire just growing, I guess, even with large corporates that are now deciding to set up, I guess, office spaces within your locations as well. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. So the other, I suppose, nod to our growth is that we have seen the demand for it and, and we know that it's working. So we have recently seen in a study released by CEBR about the economic impact of we work in a City that of members in London credit WeWork with improving their company's productivity. So we know that there's the thirst for it. We know there's the hunger for it and that people actually are benefiting from it. And I think ultimately, when we first started, we knew that startups, entrepreneurs, smaller companies couldn't necessarily have the same kind of access to workspace or the same kind of access to an ecosystem that larger enterprises could And by creating our model, we allowed that to be possible. But now I think that across the board, whether you're an enterprise, a large enterprise or a small startup, they're also recognizing that WeWork provides flexible, high quality space at a significant cost saving. And again, out of the same report that was issued recently, a company of four in London can actually save as much as 24,000 pounds a year. And it takes into consideration all of the factors that people don't necessarily think of as much when they think of starting their own space or having their own space. And so, mm-hmm. to know that we're doing that good, I think, is just perpetuating the demand for it.
0: Very cool. And so, and actually, one of the other things you touched on was ecosystem, and that is another huge part of the key kind of ethos of your business.
1: So. Community is the heart and soul of everything that we do. And I think a key aspect to being a good neighbor or a good collaborator or a good participant in a community is to listen and to partner. So we want a movement of positive change and development in people's lives. And we're really proud to partner with organizations in our larger community whose mission aligns with that. So the Flatiron School, which I'm happy to talk about, A little bit in a moment, we have recently integrated the Flatiron School, which is a coding school based out of New York, whose mission is to enable a better life through education, whether you're a new graduate, someone looking to shift careers, or you're looking to seek kind of upskill or reskill in your employee base. And we have actually, through the Flatiron School, partnered with the White Hat Initiative to help apprentices gain tech skills and have that kind of access to coding education. Additionally, we've partnered with the Diana Institute as a part of their mentorship program and have given a lot of time and energy that we are incredibly excited about to work with Hackney London, or Hackney Council, rather, in London. And we've been working with refugees. That's a huge initiative of ours as well. We work as committed to hiring 1,500 refugees over the next five years, and so we're working with a local company breaking barriers to hire skilled refugees as well. So we work as a core part of a community, and we want to demonstrate
0: that. I love it. Okay, and so you mentioned Flatter, and so let's talk a little bit about that because not only like did you guys partner with you guys actually purchased them, <laughs> <We> <laughs> really did. right? So you guys. So I think it was earlier this year that you launched your first cohort in the UK. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes, that's right. So um, we purchased Flatiron School in 2017. And some of the kind of thought around that is as much as we want to provide the space, the services, and ultimately the community for our members, we believe that everyone should be equipped for the future world of work. It's something much bigger than that. And so the coding school really allows individuals to do that and to be constantly ready for what the future of work will entail. So since launching in 2012, Flatiron School has helped over a thousand graduates learn to code and has actually relaunched many people's careers as developers, whereas they could have done something totally unrelated before that. It could have been someone who was in law and decided to shift. And so I think a lot of it comes from the fact that we, our ethos is that We believe we're all constantly learning and growing, and I think that is part of what the future of work stands for as well, is that we have to be fluid and agile and flexible, but we're seeing a huge amount of interest in the Flatiron School, and I think that's because people want a career change, they wanna try something new, they are ready to experiment and to kind of grow and see what the future of work may hold. And I think coding is a huge part of that. So we were really thrilled that we were able to launch it earlier this year in London and look forward to seeing where else we can take it.
0: One of the other things I like about the Flatiron School is that you actually have allocated a certain portion of the graduates for scholarships. And my understanding is that the women of color as well. So you're actually doing your part to try and, with respect to the technology sector anyways, try and bring in a lot of diversity, different genders, by allocating these scholarships. Is that correct? That's the aim. Yes,
1: yes, I really feel so. So we have partnered with organizations like White Hat, where we're offering a million pounds in scholarships to people from underrepresented backgrounds including women and ethnic minorities and we truly believe that we want to help be a part of this. So if we're talking about the overall future of work, we can't just change the environments in which people work in and call it a day and say okay, there we go, that's the future of work. It's more flexible workspace or it's kind of nicer environment to be in. I think that we really need to look at what has to change fundamentally and it's incredibly important to recognize access and yes. inclusivity as, as a core pillar of that. And so the future of work, which is really what we're after, needs to focus on diversity and opportunity. And I mean, I truly hope that through these initiatives and through Flatiron School, working with companies like White Hat, that we are able to be a part of that future.
0: Awesome. And White Hat, just just if people are listening and are interested, White Hat is actually founded by Ewan Blair, who is Tony Blair's son. Yes, and we had Tony on the show, so maybe we'll be able to get Ewan yes. on the show. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. And then I think one thing that's come out of this too, seeing how something larger than Flatiron and looking at how we work as a whole can focus on the future of diversity and the future of diversity in tech in particular is looking at female founders and entrepreneurs leading that kind of movement. And so we have actually seen that 54% of female WeWork members are in a management or leadership position, which was so cool to see and that's actually compared with only 10% across the larger London workforce. And oh. so it's there are many things you can dig into with that but I think by giving all founders a kind of platform and a stage to be able to craft their work and create something. I mean, we've seen, I love that 54% of females that are in our space are actually of that kind of management or leadership level, which I think also points to another dimension of the future that people can do what they want and create their own companies and and have different access to those kinds of opportunities.
0: I love it. And actually, I believe that WeWork has a number of women in the senior positions as well, don't they?
1: Yes. Yes, we do. We've made a real concerted effort, I think, to bring many different perspectives and voices to the table. And I know our local, our leadership team in Europe is actually 50% male
0: and female. I like it. I like it. This is how, well, that's how the change happens, right? Uh, Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Leading by example. Mm Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about WeWork coming to the UK. What were some of the things that you guys had to sort of shift or adjust to make sure that that you had created spaces that people from the UK wanted to come and collaborate in?
1: Sure. Um, so to be honest, I think a lot of the differences were purely operational. And so how we operate is that we kind of go by the model, think global, act local, and I think there were a couple of things that we definitely messed up when we first came over. I remember asking a couple of members when I arrived, we had noticed that the consumption of our coffee was so much lower than the consumption rate in the U.S. And I we were thinking, this is so weird. We're pretty sure we know that tea is very popular, but why wouldn't the coffee be? And we started speaking with our members and and really trying to dig into the experience. and. Very kind of embarrassingly realized that, yeah, filtered coffee is not so much of a thing here. (laughs) And it was something as simple as, like, well, in the US, we're happy to have just this kind of turn on tap filtered coffee. There you go. And that's just not the appetite here. It's not. So
0: funny. I know you can't go to the coffee shop and ask for, like, if you ask for a coffee, they're like, what type of coffee? Like, it's, exactly. Coffee. It's specialty coffee. Yeah. Always like a flat white or this, that. And I'm like, I, I just want like black coffee. Right. A black
1: coffee. It's that's, I mean, Americano, I guess is becoming more of a thing, but even that yes. is different from what we were preparing as kind of this filtered coffee. And I remember in that moment, I mean, the core principle is the same. It's that people want to go into a space and have the routine and the ritual of getting their warm morning beverage. And they want to have the kind of flexibility and ease of doing that. So in that sense, that's the same. That's the kind of global part. But the local is, you know, exactly what they're consuming. It has to be local to that market. And so we learned quickly and soon put in specialty, kind of full barista, machines. Um, And then actually our locations do have, we have wonderful baristas in our locations serving specialty made to order coffee drinks as well. And so that was something we hopped onto right away. But I think ultimately the backbone of what we're offering and what people want is the same. I think there's so many more similarities than there are differences. We, We have a global company that's focused on serving I suppose, the fundamental things that are important to companies and our members today. And those things are access to the space, the services, the community, the flexibility. And I think what's so beautiful is that all of those things transcend culture or language or, I mean, they're kind of these human principles that we try to bring into the workplace that it doesn't matter if you're in India, or in Los Angeles, or or Australia, those ring true no matter who you are. And I think the kind of operational elements or the acting local elements are just the things kind of on top that we can figure out as we go. And, And really by listening to what local markets want and need, it could be as simple as having different kinds of events in our locations in Paris versus New York, and they should be different. We want to cater to those audiences.
0: It's true, but I guess it's definitely one of those things until you work and live in those uh, communities for a while, you you don't know, right? So you come over with your ideas of what worked in the other places or other countries, and then you soon... The great thing about individuals is that often they'll just tell you... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly. I think it's just listening. It's it's
0: asking, yeah. listening, yeah, it's asking, and listening. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Genuinely being interested in what people deem as delightful experience, and then being able to deliver on that.
0: Now, do you have the baristas in your North American locations as well, or just? In-
1: I think that we are. Uh, I don't so- want
0: anybody listening to be like what. Dang,
1: I'm so sorry. So we've, we've trialed, we've trialed different things. I will say that I know okay. um there are a couple that are, are trying it out, seeing what works. I think that's one of the, the beautiful things is that we're always thinking about how we can provide even more of an elevated experience or a special experience for our members. And so it very well could be that in North America, they're testing and trialing a few things out that haven't made their way over here yet. And I think that's part of the beauty of it as well is we can all learn from each other, but ultimately it is in the interest of giving people an amazing experience every day.
0: So I wanted to ask you guys, with your crazy rate of expansion, would you guys classify yourself as like a real estate company or a technology (laughs) company? Because I don't don't know, how do you guys... To define yourselves or or do you ever? Yeah.
1: I think it, it can seem like a little bit of, of an identity crisis. I think that's a great question. And ultimately, the answer is yes <laughs> to, to all of it. I think we are a company that's focused on shifting the future of work and directing and defining what a future of work could look like, which ultimately is a movement. It's so much more than a sector, I think, and, and you can't. I don't think that you can do that by just focusing on one sector. I don't think that you could say we want to facilitate and be part of this movement that helps people create a life and not just a living. And we want to humanize the way that people are working every single day and, and bring that kind of real life interaction back by just focusing on real estate or just focusing on tech. It's so multi dimensional. And so I think that our core focus is, yes, our space is critical to what we do. We value that physical product that we have and the physical locations that we have, but it really is the vehicle to be able to provide a community, provide services and benefits of being part of this community, being able to foster those interactions. And we leverage tech to do that as well. So I think it would be wrong for us to say that we are not involved in any of those sectors, but how we define ourselves is actually, I think, a movement towards a new wave of working.
0: Oh, I like that. A movement (laughs) towards a new way of working. Yes. Yes. I like it. All right. So now we are going to get into our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you four questions and you're just going to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, so the one book I would recommend to all listeners, and why is? The one book
1: I would recommend to all listeners is, I would say, Sink, Float, or Swim. And it's actually based on a philosophy that came out of a place called the Tignum Institute. And it's based in Arizona, and it's based on the principle that essentially, there are four key pillars to sustainable high performance. And I think it's it's so funny. I love things that return us back to basics. <laughs> yep. Because I think that sometimes we overcomplicate things. You think? I overcomplicate
0: things. It's and a gift we have as adults.
1: <laughs> yes, it's just, it's crazy. And I think the core principles of sink, float, or swim are essentially, there are four pillars. It's movement, nutrition, rest, and mindfulness, and kind of these four pillars of your life and how you actually fuel. Are you taking care of yourself in a way that best serves you and sets you up for performance? And it's funny, I, it's reframing things. I appreciate things that, that kind of reframe your thoughts or your perspectives about how you approach work and personal life. And I really appreciated that with the book, it kind of talks about how you can set yourself up to serve you the best that you can, which in turn then helps impact and serve others.
0: Right. Awesome. Sink, Float, or Swim by...
1: I know that Scott Pelton is one of the authors, but it was actually co-authored.
0: Okay. The one person I would like to have lunch with and why is... Mm. Barack Obama. Okay. I can agree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, it takes me a minute to think this lightning round is is good exercise for me. Um, I think that, oh, there could have been so many answers to the question, but I'm going to stand by it. I think it's such an interesting, there's a lot to be said of political climate and things like that, but um, I think his ability, first of all, he's a phenomenal orator and I really admire that in an in individual. I think it's an incredible skill. I really am inspired by powerful leaders. And I actually should shift my um, wording there. It's not it's not powerful. It's someone who can touch a really kind of human, um, kind, compassionate part of people and pull people together uh, through through speech and through talking to them Mm -hmm. and I I think it's just such a craft so I think uh, uh, anything that's kind of independent of of politics I just think him as a person I I, he's really respectable and I I would love to have that kind of time with him
0: all right one thing people would be surprised to learn about me is
1: is I'm terrible with pop culture (laughs) So
0: as much as I
1: like to be in the know about current events and keeping up with things, if any sentence starts with, have you seen, and then refers to a movie or a TV show or references a celebrity or a kind of pop culture reference, I am just, I I don't know. There's no use in asking me. So (laughs) I think. Most people kind of look at me and think like, how do you not know this? It's like, I've been living under a rock when it comes to pop
0: culture. Okay. And the advice I would give my 15 year old self would be?
1: It would be to let go a little bit. I think, and it's advice that I actually am still giving myself daily, but I think we tend to put so much pressure on ourselves and I think ambition and motivation is wonderful, but I think it has to also be balanced with a perspective that not any one decision or not any one action should be taken so seriously. And I think even even myself at 15, I think I was very concerned with what am I going to do with my life? what do I want to study in order to do that as my profession? Or um I think I was pretty intimidated by how I would make future decisions in order to ensure this kind of happiness long term. And like that's a huge amount of pressure to put on yourself as a fifteen year old. Um
0: was I thinking like that? Mm, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was I was pretty I think um I was trying to think about kind of what I would do. And there was a lot of emphasis on a profession or what, what would I study in order to um, be able to be super interested in what I was doing. And I just think life in general, there's just so much more of a holistic perspective that I hold or I attempt to hold now that it is so much, it's just not about work it's not about your profession. I just think there's so many things. I feel, I feel incredibly grateful for the fact that I, I love what I'm doing and it feels so much more like a a life's work or a project rather than um, a job. But I just think that the kind of fundamentals of having relationships with family and, developing relationships with friends and being a good person and like you're if you are focusing on those things you're you're doing all right so i would just tell myself don't worry and and let go a little
0: all right that is it for this episode of the digital leaders podcast now if you want to find out more about lenny and we work make sure you head on over to our website digileaders.com forward slash digital leaders podcast and we have all that information there If you like what you heard or think someone else would like it, then we would love it if you shared it on social and tagged us at DigiLeaders. Also, if you know somebody or an organization that you think should be in the show, tag us and let us know. We are back next Tuesday with another episode, so make sure you are subscribed to the podcast via iTunes so you do not miss it. That is it for this week's episode. I'm your host, Tara Ferguson. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back next week with another episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast.